it's an interesting time. It's an interesting time. You can get your music out to an audience um, very quickly. Uh, it might be a very small audience to begin with, but you know, music is magic. Welcome to the Social Fabric Podcast. I'm your host, Andreas Splendori, and this week my guest is Fjekne Hobrenan. Fjekne is a founding member of the Hot House Flowers. He hosts The Late Date on RTE Radio 1 and has recently re-released his solo album, Bougainville. Fjekne is a true gentleman, and when I asked him if I could use one of his songs from my first live podcast, he decided to compose one from scratch. The result is a beautiful piece, Winter Sun, with visuals by Neil Meehan. You can find more episodes on socialfabric.ie, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. This program is also broadcast every Monday on Near FM 90.3. Only a few seconds of the music chosen is played in the podcast for rights reason. You can find the full playlist on Spotify. The title track is Alice by Lucky Bones. Please subscribe and share, it really helps. And if you want to get in touch with the program, please email me at info at socialfabric.ie. Can I call you up a while on a Friday night? We could reminisce on old days and we could talk a while. Good to go. Yeah. All right. So finally, me and Fikna Brown. Finally. <laughs> Finally. <laughs> anyway, no, as we were talking about just before the microphone, life is busy, so it's taken a while to get together. But finally, we got together. And uh, I'll tell you what I like to start thinking from um, the first time I met you, we had a quick conversation about uh, I've been a fan of the flowers for, for a long, long time. And uh, when I first met you, I said to you, I was at a gig in Rome and uh, and you were in plane. And you remember the gig a lot better than I do. Tell us why. Well, I remember the gig particularly well because I wasn't there for the gig. I was there for the sound check. <laughs> but then I had to get on a plane uh, and fly back to Dublin for the birth of my now 29-year-old twin daughters, uh, Kasia and Leithen, um, who arrived, as many twins do, prematurely. And um, so, yeah, I got a phone call from my mum, who was in with Kasia and Leithen's mum, um, all quite rushed as these things tend to happen and of course there's Fiekna just after the sound she going can they wait <laughs> <laughs> no they can't wait you need to get back and um, it was the one and only time I ever flew in a private plane wow. uh, because all the flights had gone and luckily there was a the head of marketing from the record company was there with his big gold card so they uh, they they hired a plane for me uh, to go back it was a very surreal flight back just me on a little on a little jet with two pilots wow. uh, flying back from from Rome to Dublin and then arrived quite late at night into Dublin airport and you know when you arrive in on a private plane as well you have this sort of private way through the airport as well it was very you know I felt like an incomplete VIP <laughs> heading off to meet the real two VIPs who had just come into the world and did you make it in time? no I missed the birth um, by a number of hours they were born that, 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 that evening around 7 o'clock and I got to the hospital to the nursing home at about oh it might have been 11 o'clock or midnight uh, yeah yeah and it was fascinating because I remember I remember saying to you um, the gig wasn't great in fairness <laughs> and you know in fairness to the other guys they did their best I think it was your roadie played that's right time. Mark and Mark. I'm sure you did a fantastic job well, I'm, can you imagine for him how nerve wracking it would have been because he'd been you know learning the songs and obviously observing and he knew the chords and he could play guitar but he played guitar differently to me probably um, so I'd say I'd say he was very nervous 
And I'd say the guys also just felt it, it must have felt different. You know, there's a kind of a, a wheel in, 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 the, in, the, in the whole thing that wasn't turning the same way as it normally did, you know. So, yeah. And what month was that? That was September. Right. The because 28th. Uh, in around that time is when I moved to Ireland. And, uh, and uh, just a couple of months later, you guys played in the, in the point, as yeah. it was known. And that was the New Year's Eve gig. That's right. Which is, and I'm not saying because I'm sitting in front of you, but it was still one of my favorite gigs. It was just spectacular. Mm. And that was only a couple of months after the Rome. Do, do you remember that gig in particular? I do, I do. Yeah, I remember because the, the kids, the, the little ones at that stage had only just come home maybe a few weeks. They were in incubators for a while. Right. You know, they, there, there was some cooking that needed to be <laughs> completed after they were born. So they were in these incubators for maybe two or three weeks because they were premature. And then we eventually brought them home. Um, and then when the gig and the point came up, of course, we had to bring them with us. So they were in a very quiet dressing room backstage at the point in, in little cots, you know. Oh. Um, and, you know, we brought a minder with us and so on. So, you know, I do remember that very, very clearly. But tell me something. Like, you were a young man then. Mm. Um, not that you aren't now, but you're much younger <laughs> then. <laughs> I was. And, and that was kind of pretty much the height of... of not necessarily the height of your career, but that was full on with yeah. the hot ass flowers at the time you were going. It was certainly the busiest The time. busiest time, yeah. Um, so what was um, it like to all of a sudden to become a father in the middle of it all? Well, it was, it was amazing. Um, I was probably the first guy in the band to become a father. So I was, you know, when I was 24 and we were all 24 or 25 mm. at the time. Um, I was almost 25, I guess. I turned 25 in, in the November of, of 1990. And they were born in September. So, you know, it... it, it it, it changes your life completely. Mm. Um, you've suddenly got these, it's not about you anymore. It's about these two little people um, that are with you for life. Uh, and of course, I've had, you know, more kids since then. And um, But back then, it just, it, it changes your perspective on things. And it changes the reason you do things. And it also <laughs> changes the reason you don't do some things too. Um <laughs> You know, but it was, it's amazing now, you know, I've got small kids again now and there's a sort of maybe a sense of calm or a sense of experience that comes with age, also a sense of exhaustion, (laughs) but it's not as worrying maybe, you know, having been through twins initially. And of course, I've got a 14 year old daughter as well. Um, But with the twins, you know, when they came home, they're, they're, now looking but they're they're so great now they're such great company um they're adults you know they're older than i am now <laughs> and infinite infinitely wiser brilliant let's break it up with the first song you gave yeah. me which is fountain dc yeah what's the song well fontaine's dc have just burst on the scene i mean i know they've been around for 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 a number of years they're they're a band they're actually from mayo people think they're a dublin band there's one dublin guy in there and the rest of them are from mayo but they They've, I think, been brought up in Dublin, and they're they're these they're young guys. They're into punk rock. They're into poetry. They're into literature. They're into energy. And the the, the song on there, they have an album called Dogrel. I was talking to somebody yesterday who who was talking about the Fontaines DC. This being the year of the Dogrel, you know, um, they've had an, an incredible success, and deservedly so. They've got passionate energy. They have lyricism and wit, and they sing. You kind of know where they're from. Uh, by the accent of the, the voice, by Grian's voice, which I love as well. Um, and the song Boys in the Better Land, it's just, it's high energy. It's, I suppose it's a song that's aspirational. It's about 
talking to somebody about looking further afield, you know, how, how we often see how the, the hills, the faraway hills are always greener. So it's kind of about that, I think. You're not alive until you start kicking When the room is spinning and the words aren't sticking And the radio's all about a runaway model With a face like sin and a heart like a James Jones novel So I just want to go back a few years before you joined the, the, the band and, and you became the, the, the musician. Where, where, where did the music, the love for music come from? And where was the... Like I spoke to Colin McNamara for this podcast last year and he actually mentioned you and Liam and you know, he said the generosity of you guys, they're a couple of years older than him, going back into the school and really inspiring the likes of Colm and everybody else out of that school. Where, where did your inspiration come from and why did you get into music? Well, I guess it came from home first, but it was certainly, Colm is absolutely right. We were we were lucky. We went to the same schools. We went to Skullurkoin was our primary school and then Kolosta Own was our secondary school. Both of those schools really fostered music, mainly traditional Irish music, but really all kinds of music, all kinds of creativity, really. Music, singing, dancing, painting. Um, and there were annual competitions in school, whether they were the, 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 the school's own fesh, they called it, like they, we had fesh lurkine. So when we were seven or eight years old, we were learning the tin whistle. Um, and then, you know, once a year, there'd be a little competition and you could do it. You'd do your solo tunes or maybe team up with somebody and, and play some duets uh, and then as you got older, maybe graduate to other instruments. I graduated to the flute. Um, but then my mother also um, had bought a guitar when I was about eight or nine. And she started learning flamenco guitar. She had a, we had a Spanish guitar in the house. And she used to go to a guy in, in, in Dublin called Ernie Early, who used to do gigs as the great Ernesto. He used to kind of... But she had this flamenco guitar and she would come home and be practicing her flamenco. And that, that, that kind of captivated my imagination in a completely different way to say the traditional Irish tunes on the on the tin whistle. So I just bought myself a chord book for the guitar and sat down learning chords. Just I was self-taught for many years uh, until my mid-teens when I started doing a few lessons with a, with a, a local teacher by the name of Jimmy McGuinness, who was a gorgeous guitar player as well. So it came from home, but, you know, when Colin McInumera talks about the school that we went to, he's absolutely right. Um... The school, I think, just had a natural instinct to foster creativity. It wasn't something that was terribly formal in the school. It wasn't something there was even a specific class set out for. You mean you could study music. But if we were entering Sloga, for example, there was another competition which was very important to us called Sloga. And it was for teenagers, really. And it was an opportunity for teenagers to get away from their folks and go off and kind of grow up a little bit but also through the medium of art, be it spoken word, drama, dancing. They had painting and visual art sections in it as well, but for us, most importantly, music. So it was where we formed our first rock group and it was where we played our tunes. And it's where we also saw the older guys, the guys who were by now 17 or 18, who were, you know, our heroes then. Um, I remember as a 13-year-old boy in Colossus Owen looking at the band who were now 
17 or 18, which included Cormac Branagh, who you might know, the mm. flute player who, who is local to us here in Greystones mm. as well. And they were brilliant. They were like the best band you'd ever seen when they were playing in the school hall. So we were inspired the whole time. We also, anytime we went, needed to practice, we would go to our teachers, you know, whether it was your English teacher or your maths teacher or your science teacher and say, listen, can I take a, some time off? I need to practice for Sloga for the competition. And they would say, absolutely. And we used to go out to the football yard, uh, the changing room and play in there for hours. Brilliant. So it was, it was home and school, really, is where it all came from initially. And is the school still there? The school is still, still there. Is still the same ethos? Yeah, absolutely. The school Because you guys go back, right? You guys go back every now and then for some... We do. Every so often the school has There was something concerts. recently. There was. Some, yeah. There was the school celebrated its 50th anniversary recently. And um, myself and Liam went back to perform um, in the National Concert Hall, where they had lots of ex-pupils, including Colin McInnumera, including also uh, Matthew Okasada and his band The Bonnie Men. Um, they also had some some guys who had you know been through the school and become you know won all Ireland medals in for for Dublin the football and so on. So it was a great celebration. They had some of the obviously some of the current pupils from the school performing as well, and they asked me to host it. I was I ended up being the MC as well as performing as well. So there's very much uh, the, the the tradition of 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 music in the school is very much alive. The principal of the school at the moment is Princius de Pura who was in that band with Cormac Branagh that I mentioned earlier. Okay. He was one of the older boys when I came into the school first. He's now running the school. Brilliant. Brilliant. That's great. <laughs> He's the right man. Brilliant. And uh, talking about the old days, the Stones. Why did you pick uh, Give Me Shelter? <laughs> well, I guess the Stones for me, if I was to hold my hand up, if I was to be asked, you know, who's your favourite band ever? I, I, I would reply the Rolling Stones automatically. They just, for some reason, captured my imagination during my teens. I went to see them in Slane Castle in 1982 when I was maybe 16 or 17 years old and I got the 7am bus from Parnell Square down to Slane to make sure that I was up the front. Uh, I don't know what I even brought with me. I think a bottle of water and a sandwich was all I brought, you know. And I went with my friend Christophe, who was a French student who was staying with us at the time. So we got down to the front. We were on site in Slane by about nine o'clock in the morning. And of course, the Stones didn't play till that evening. But we got to see the Chieftains were the first band on. Then George Thorogood and the Delaware Destroyers, who were incredible, amazing blues guitar player. Uh, and then who else? The Jay Giles Band were on then. And then the Rolling Stones finished up and they had just released Tattoo You, the album at the time. Um, but the song that I've always found to be a song that spoke to me emotionally is the song Gimme Shelter. And the background to the song, it was written on a very stormy night in London during what were quite turbulent times for the Stones, even personally. Um, I think Keith Richards was the main inspiration behind the song, although I'm sure Mick helped finish it as well, lyrically. Um, but it just, it's something that's very elemental. And of course, Mary Clayton's incredible vocals. Um, they, they recorded her backing vocals in Los Angeles, I think when they were putting the finishing touches to the album. And they phoned her up, it was quite late at night, she was heavily pregnant, and her voice on this is in incredible as well. And the song affected me to such a degree that I went to see this, I saw the Stones live a number of times, in fact we opened for the Stones a few times as well. But one of the times that I saw them, we had just opened for them, so a dream come true, we'd opened for the Rolling Stones in Barcelona, okay. and then went out to the audience with my brother who was studying in Barcelona at the time and Gimme Shelter started and just the tears started rolling down my eyes for some reason, you know, so it's a, it's a big song for me. 
Well, talking about the hothouse flowers then, uh, so you and Liam are in the school together around the same time. Um, give us a bit of a background on how, that, how all that happened then from going off practicing for Sloga to yeah. become the, the hothouse flowers. Well, Liam came into the school, Liam and his brother Cullum came to our primary school, Skullurkoin. They didn't start there. They'd started in another school and then they came a, a couple of years later. And Cullum, in fact, was in my class and Liam was a year ahead of me. He was always a year ahead of me. Um, but, and then Cullum and I used to play music together a lot. And then we would congregate at the bus stop initially. The number 17 bus was the bus that we used to get to and from school. And they were on the same bus route. And the number 17 bus used to always be on time. It was a rare bus. <laughs> so it gave us lots of time to hang out at the bus stop and the tin whistles would come out and we would start playing tunes. And Liam always laughs at the fact that the first encounter I had with him was that I was boasting that I was better on the whistle than his brother Colin. You know, this kind of ridiculous one-upmanship. <laughs> um, but over the years, we became pals through school and we, we, we would enter Sloga. We played together. We had traditional bands. And then eventually... Um, Sloga was the first time that any of us also saw rock bands or many of us saw rock bands because they had a rock group category that you could enter. Um, and this was like the holy grail to us to pick up an electric guitar and make some rock music as well as all the traditional music we were making. So we, we entered, we put together a rock group, which was myself and Liam and Maria Doyle Kennedy, oh, wow. who was the singer. Um, and a couple of other guys, uh, Michael Brown, who's now, he lives in Sligo. He's a, he still sings folk songs. Con Weber played the clarinet. Colm O'Keesog from My Bloody Valentine was the drummer. He was in school with us as well. And there was a, there was a couple of other guys as well. Oh, Dave. Oh, what was his name? Brilliant guy on flute as well. There was a sort of a rolling cast. And then eventually we played at the Sloga finals. We wrote our own songs. We called ourselves Onfonton, which is F-O-N-N-T-O-N-N, which is kind of like the sound wave in Irish. (laughs) And we won. We won. We got this taste. We got this, you know, we did our 15 minutes, our three songs. And the place went mad. You know, we had that screaming for more and all this kind of feeling, this fever pitch response from the audience. And that that was us, hook, line and sinker. That was us wanting to be in a rock band from then on. And then time passed. I went to university. Liam was in university. And our mutual friend, Eamon uh, Hessian, called us and said, there's a a gig in Cyan Hill. They want you to do a gig. Do you want to go and do it? So I recruited, found a drummer in the Belfield Bar at the time, a guy called John Paul Tanzi. So myself and Liam and John Paul got together one afternoon and we put together a set of songs. And um, did Maria join us then or not? My memory isn't very clear. But Maria eventually joined us and we started a residency having done this gig in Sign Hill we then started a residency in the Magic Carpet in Cornell School oh, in, 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 in that pub there in what is now the Dolman Theatre upstairs right, um, and so the first night we played we called ourselves we weren't Hot House Flowers the first night we had a dreadful name we decided to pick a name by, by, by flicking the leaves of a book and putting your finger on the number of the page and the first words you would see and I think it was Goose Stump which is on page 72 so we were goose stomp 72 dreadful name <laughs> uh, so the second week Liam had seen this record sleeve um, by Winton Marsalis and the album title was Hothouse Flowers 
which is the title of a, a jazz, an old jazz piece. So we said, we've oh, listen, that'll do this week. We'll call ourselves Hot Ass Flowers this week. And it stuck. stuck. Brilliant. Um, yeah. Because, I mean, you went uh, from the Magic Carpet to... Um, to the Gigasso in Rome, that wasn't too many years later. I mean, that was no. quite quick. Like uh, you, the magic carpet. You were famous in Rome 20, 30, 29 years ago, thirty years ago. Yeah, which you know, the magic carpet couldn't be much much earlier than that. No, the magic carpet started, I think, it was April nineteen eighty five. Was the magic carpet, and then the summer of nineteen eighty five was the summer that we went busking, okay. as the Benzini brothers. A lot of people think we started as the Benzini Brothers and then became Hot House Flowers. In fact, we started as Hot House Flowers in April in the Magic Carpet. And then that summer, we were all on holidays from university. So we, you know, to make a few quid, Liam had already moved out of home and needed to pay the rent. So we went busking nearly every day. And then we ended up winning the Street Entertainer of the Year Award. Uh, It was on Bewley's Cafe on the balcony there. And it was Liam's brother, Cullum, who entered us into the competition. And... By virtue of winning that, the Liam Nolan Show, which is the lunchtime show on RTE Radio 1 at the time, asked us to come on the radio. And then a young researcher by the name of John McHugh, who is now runs entertainment in RTE, he was a researcher on The Late Late Show, and he had seen us busking on Grafton Street um, and asked, would we appear on The Late Late Show? As Benzini Brothers. As the, as the incompetent yeah, I've Benzini that, I've Brothers. I've seen that. So, that, yeah, you've seen that. I've seen it, yeah. The slicked back hair and the sunglasses, you know, looking like <laughs> the Blues Brothers or something. And that was that was our first TV appearance. Wow. And that really, the Benzini Brothers was, a, was an incredible vehicle. It was an amazing alter ego to be able to tell people on the street that the Hothouse Flowers also existed and played concerts indoors, you know. So the Benzini Brothers was improvised chaos. And the Hot House Flowers was the band that were going to take on the world in concert halls and in theatres and so on. And of course, the Hot House Flowers has ended up being chaos <laughs> 30 years later. <laughs> but okay. it's good chaos. It's good chaos. <laughs> well, let me break it with um, Wallace Bird. I don't know yeah. this one, so tell me about it. This is a song from Wallace's most recent album, which is called Woman. And Wallace is just, she is such a tower of energy. And this is one of the most life-affirming songs I've heard recently. It's called Salve. And I think the song just speaks for itself. It's uplifting, it's life-affirming, and and she's amazing. If you ever get the chance to go see Wallace Bird, go see her. stay for a second with the others I'm just fascinated by we're similar vintage and you know while I was listening to you guys and well I think you know I think it was the beginning of MTV and all that kind of stuff so we were teenage 20 and that's all we wanted to do was music but we didn't have the we weren't good enough anyway but we did we tried our best but we watched the likes of yourself and it was great because it was a again it was all it was all about the age group of you know, I was like these guys, you know, who are these guys? And it was you, and then there was the uh, the Irish. The Irish music came through in Italy uh, quite strong with uh, uh, well, obviously you guys and um, Scott, Mike Scott, and the Water Boys. Uh, the Water Boys. Yeah. That was the whole thing. And so all of a sudden, all of us 
as well as listening to the stones and everything, we started to, to listen to this new wave, and then obviously you two came out. So the whole of a sudden was this. And in fairness, that was one of the re- one of the many reasons why I came to Ireland. Mm. There was uh, there was this uh, idea of an art form coming out. But what was it like to be a twenty year old and all of a sudden, well, twenty two, twenty, and all of a sudden mm. you're you're in the world stage and you're touring and you. It was incredibly exciting. Some some weird confident, self-confident part of us felt that we deserved all of this. <laughs> it's true, you know. It's kind of a blind confidence that, you know, you know, I remember the phone rang. I was still living with my parents and the phone rang. It was Rolling Stone magazine calling from New York saying, we are going to call you the best unsigned group in the world, right? Wow. So, you know, of course you are. <laughs> I've been waiting for you the call. You know, yeah, we were waiting. Yeah. No, I mean, it was, you know, despite all of that confidence, which I think a band has to have, you know, you have to have that thing that it, it's the the, the, the the thing that makes your spine sort of rigid and says to the world, we're going to take on the world. And we really felt that. And it's something that I think is very youthful, um, where you've got that confidence where you can, you know, we'll, we'll do the biggest concert ever we, we you know i remember somebody rang us one day and said we want you to can you do a lunchtime concert in belfield on the lake in front of thousands of people tomorrow uh, we need you and we said absolutely of course we can and we went and did it and i met somebody very recently who was at that who said it was brilliant you know uh, i think that kind of confidence it, it is infectious and people relate to it and people admire it but it was very busy and it took us off on a roller coaster around the world and i guess what slowly started to happen is we were no longer in control of our own destinies. And I know that became problematic um, for us. I think it started affecting how we felt within the band. We felt like we were being driven rather than actually driving ourselves, mm. uh, which up until then had happened. Now, it was, don't get me wrong, it was super exciting. We got to go to all kinds of amazing places, but we were touring, 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 touring. And when we weren't touring, it was time to make the next record. So um, I guess then, you know, I became a dad when I was 24. We were on, what, album number two or three at that stage. Um, and then I was away from me. When I think about it now, these are the times there was no internet, really. I mean, it was probably just starting and there certainly weren't any mobile phones. So I was the father of twin infants going away on tour to America for two or three months and going to a coin box, throwing in a quarter and going, hi, is everybody OK? And then go, OK, I'm running out of money. Beep, beep, beep. See you. Talk to you next week. Mm-hmm. You know, kind of crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, so after eight very, very exciting years, um, it did start taking its toll on the band and on our, I guess, our relationships. And we just had to, Liam put it really well when he said, we just had to bring the ship into dry dock and put it up and let four seasons go by so that we could experience four seasons staying still or staying in the one place, staying wherever we wanted to be. So that gave us an opportunity to to just reflect and and to maybe allow time to pass so that what needed to be fixed could be fixed, which happened to some degree. Um, and I guess from then on, really, uh, we became the masters of our own destiny again. We became, we regained control. Uh, of what we wanted to do and so since then you know we've enjoyed the last 20 plus years just doing what we want to do and the beauty I suppose of the first eight years is that all of that hard work has kind of paid off because people still remember that time when you know every bit of 
machinery was behind us we were hugely exposed to the world at that time and but people's memories of the gigs is so warm and great that they still keep coming and the phone still keeps ringing say you know do you want to come and play Glastonbury got a phone call the other day saying do you want to come and play Glastonbury are you playing next year we're going to play in June ah, yeah, fabulous yeah. Um, I also remember like again you stopped making uh, records for a while mm. um, you haven't had a record we haven't had a record in a number of years yeah. well that's both true and false we, we our last our last major label release was 1998. It was an album called Born, which was with the record company who put out People, Home and Songs from the Rain. And they kind of put out Born. It was a great record. We were very excited by it. And we did lots of, you know, we did that Chris Evans TV show. We went and opened for the Rolling Stones, as I mentioned, on that on that album. But they never put it out in America. And they didn't put it out in Australia, which was kind of crazy, seeing as we'd had number one records in Australia. And it was became very clear after a few months that they weren't really going to put this record out properly so we parted company with the record company which was london records under polygram which had become warners then and in many ways i suppose it was a it was it was what sealed our path to complete independence because then we made a live record ourselves which we recorded in the national stadium in dublin in 1998 immediately after being dropped from the label we made a, a live record ourselves and we went off to america and sold that at our shows uh, and we took matters into our own hands. Then we made a record in 2004 called Into Your Heart, which we put out with Ruby Works. We were an, inter- you know, an independent re- record label here. Um, and that was the last label release. Since then, we've made another album. Well, we had a couple of like little independent albums. It was one called Goodnight Sun, which is another live album, which was, again, self-released. And then most recently, we've had an album called Let's Do This Thing, um, which they released in Japan. We went to Japan to play the Fuji Rock Festival and the people we work with there put it out on their label. And then we've just put it out on our own, through our own website. And we still actually have to figure out if we're going to put it out through a label or not. We will probably end up just going the completely independent route and just putting it out ourselves straight out on, you know, make the CDs yourself and put up on iTunes yourself. It's Absolutely. as simple as that now. Okay, uh, tell me about Bill Fay and what song and why so Bill Fay is a, a recent discovery um, discovered by looking at John Kelly's Mystery Train Twitter feed simple as that and I saw this album cover and it said Bill Fay and so I went to check him out and I, and I read up a little bit about him and he was a singer-songwriter based in London in the late 1960s and he, he was signed to DRAM Records who were home to Bowie at one point and T-Rex and all kinds of people and Bill had made one or two albums um, and they were entirely unsuccessful. <laughs> and um, he decided that then life would carry on and he worked as a groundskeeper, I think, as a gardener. He worked in a, I think he worked in a fish shop. He basically did various jobs as people do and lived in a little house and raised his kids. And Bill has just released an album called Countless Branches, which is a beautiful album at the age of 77 or 78 now. And by listening to that album, I decided to go back a bit further. And he made another album in 2012 um, called The Healing Day. And when I put this song on, The Healing Day, it was in fact around the time that our dear Keelan Shanley had passed away. And I was just listening to various kinds of music and the way... You know, John Kelly's Twitter feed leads to one thing, to another thing, to Spotify suggesting songs to listen to. And I had listened to this song late at night, coming home from presenting Late Date. 
and the healing day, just I was thinking of Connor and their kids. And the day after the funeral, myself and Liam went to play at the funeral. Keelan had wanted myself and Liam and Maria to sing This Is The Sea. What a privilege, what an honour to be asked to do that. So we went and did that. Maria couldn't make it, but Steve Wall was there and Julie Feeney was there. And it was beautiful. And then Connor spoke incredibly. And I was the following day I was on the radio and I really wanted to play something for the day after the funeral, which is the most difficult day that anybody can have after burying somebody. The day after when you're sort of, your beloved has died, you're carried by organising the funeral, and then the next day, that's it, you're faced with the emptiness. So Bill Faye's The Healing Day was a song that I thought, I played that on the radio, and it's, it's just such a beautiful, gentle song. nicely into my next question so I am you mentioned John Kelly and he is very much like the person I always go to to find learn new music he's mm. been doing it for so long and mm. it's just really it's, it's quite amazing what he pulls out of those uh, those sleeves but you've I've gone into that world of broadcasting over the last few years and a lot of my musician friends Irish musician friends they always highly rate you because you're the guy that kind of promotes when I say promote you, you you do give everybody the time mm. you try to make sure that an album comes out you put it out there the Eamon O'Connor whose song I used for for um, the start of this podcast that, you know you always play this music the Lucky, Lucky Bones he always said you know you, if you get a bit of time on the radio is we fake now you know so mm. tell me about that journey going into broadcasting how did you get into and what do you want to achieve out of it well I guess I had got to a point um, we were talking earlier about how Hot House Flowers had become the masters of their own destiny. And I guess in, 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 in that process, we were touring less. We were putting out fewer records, earning less money <laughs> at the bottom line. And by now, here I was with four kids, two of whom had grown up. That's fine. Um, but still four kids and a fifth one, you know, in, in the planning. We now, we now have five. Um, and so... It was my wife, actually, Sheena, who said to me, you should look into doing radio. You should look into doing broadcasting. And my friend Evelyn O'Rourke, who was a broadcaster in RTE Radio 1, was was so encouraging and hugely instrumental um, in presenting. I did a demo of a radio program, and I just contacted some friends, including Evelyn, Caroline Corr from The Corps, was generous with her time. Bill Whelan was very generous with his time. And I went and interviewed them all. Keith Barry, the magician. Um, so I think that was it. It was Keith, Bill, Caroline and Evelyn, whom I interviewed. A kind of a Desert Island Discs type of programme where I just got them to talk about their favourite songs. And I edited all of this into a little 10-minute radio demo. And Evelyn very kindly suggested that I send it in to the, the head of music at the time in RTE, who's Anne-Marie Power. And I got a call from Anne-Marie the following week saying, we don't really have room in the schedule for a programme like this one, but we have a programme called Late Date, and we often require people to come in and stand in when the presenters 
go away. And as it happens, Alf McCarthy, it was Alf or Lillian at the time, was taking four day, four nights off the following week. And, you know, would I like to just jump in at the deep end and put together four programs? So that's how I started. It was the most nerve wracking thing I've ever done. It's so surreal the first time you present a radio show because you're on your own. You know, you're, you're kind of, it comes across from the listener's point of view as a conversation. But actually, it's quite an abstract thing from a presenter's point of view because you're talking to yourself. But I had some great words of advice from some people. Um, one was imagining that you're speaking to one person because very often you are just speaking to one person. So, you know, so I resisted the urge to come on and go, hello, everybody. <laughs> you know, it's more like hello and you're talking to one person. And to, you know, I found out recently that the great broadcaster, Gay Byrne, every time he went on the radio, wrote a little handwritten note on a sheet of A4 paper, A4 paper, which was, and he wrote two words or three words. One was smile and the other was slow or slow down, I think it was. So, you know, him, for Gay Byrne to be using that as a kind of a mantra to himself when he was in his 80s, <laughs> it was amazing. So... I got into it and the wonderful Aidan Butler came in the first couple of nights that I was in. He was a producer in RTE and was the most patient man in the world, so calm, and just held my hand for the first while. And after, it's a little bit like learning how to drive a car um, and speaking to your passengers at the same time. At first, you're worried that you're going to crunch the wrong gear or you're going to make a mistake and you're going to jump, the car's going to shudder along or you might stall. And hitting the wrong button or playing the wrong song at the wrong time or whatever things can go wrong and really and they all did go wrong and <laughs> missed things and eventually you kind of fall into the flow of it and i love it now i really love it but part of i guess my love for music is a love of new music i'm interested in what's going on i love what's going on in ireland in terms of irish music not only in traditional irish music but also in very much in the Irish singer-songwriter or Irish rock bands or whatever. People who are out there doing their thing. And I just play that music. I don't, it's not, I don't have a rule. I don't have a self-imposed rule of I'm going to play half Irish music and half new music or anything like that. It just happens very naturally. It's just I hear people send me stuff and I listen to as much as I can. And if I like it, I play it. It's really as simple as that. That's brilliant. <laughs> How many years have you been doing it now? It's, I'm in my 10th year now yeah I, I was just yeah I know it's amazing my first late date was October 2010 wow well done <laughs> <laughs> so speaking of Irish music uh, the next song you gave me is um, Colin McNamara our oh, yeah. common friend um, and uh, what song did you pick for Colin well Colin Colin has a record called August Edition Amshire and now The Weather and um, it's a beautiful, beautiful album. He's had another album since then that he recorded with Bill Whelan. But this is one of my favourite pieces. It's called On Lina Inlanach, or The Finish Line. And Colm just weaves a spell with his music. I mean, one man, a fiddle, and I know he has other instruments around him, and he creates uh, his own loops with his pedal that he has, and he creates this really mesmerising, um, soothing, healing, uplifting music.
do um, a lot of, um, well, you do quite a lot of uh, documentary for TG Carr and things like that. Again, all around the, the Irish folk music. Am I right? That tends to be around the majority of... I'm trying to think. It, I mean, my, my question really is, uh, we just spoke about Colin McNamara and, uh, and like he, I think he brought Irish folk music to a different level. Mm. Um, modernize is probably their own word but mm. he, he has created a new audience for like I've known Colin forever and and I've just seen his progression over the years I was at one of his latest gigs in Baker Street it was three and a half hours and couldn't get enough of it I could have stayed yeah. five hours there yeah. and uh, but I guess from you coming from um, a Geltok background and mm-hmm. that love for the Irish music which so, so often is seen as the the, the, the hate of word diddly diddly yes yeah 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 <laughs> i have a great friend in england who's a personal trainer he's the most english man you could ever get but he always comes to our gigs he's just like, oh i'm really looking forward to hearing your diddly eye music <laughs> <laughs> so barry that's not what it's called <laughs> so but I'm, i guess are you trying to to help that have you know change or is it something that is in your head it's something that i think has been happening for longer than we imagined. Like mm. Irish folk music with, you know, the folk awards and with Colin McInumer and bands like Lancome and all kinds of other artists. The Bonnie Men we mentioned earlier on. Uh, Deary Farrell. Uh, I mean, there's, there's lists of people. Um, but Irish folk music has never been stuck in the museum. You know, it's never been something that we look at and say, that is Irish folk music and there it must remain uh, as something that we must revere and hold precious, which is obviously so that it, it is that, but it's also something that's living and breathing and evolving on a daily basis. And I don't particularly know what the reason is for that, apart from that people love it. You know, people are still actively writing new jigs and reels and new slow airs. Colin McAnumber is one of those people, and there are, there are many others, like Matthew Cassidy from The Bonnie Men um, is another. Um, the Gloaming. Martin Hayes I mean wow what a musician and the people he's surrounded himself with have taken he's done something extraordinary he's done something very pure he's rem- he's really faithful to the purity of of traditional Irish fiddle playing but I guess by playing with people like Thomas Bartlett and Dennis Cahill and of course Kevin O'Reilly and Irla they've taken it into into somewhere new as well. So it is something that's reinventing itself. But, you know, the Chieftains did that as well. Mm-hmm. You know, the Bothy Band did that. Planksty did that. Um, Moving yeah. Hearts did that. And you well. guys, uh, when uh, live, you do... And we do it. You, you know, do, I guess we do our own bit of it in our own way. It's 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 We're not viewed as a folk band. I think, you know, we're not viewed as a tr- traditional band. But we, we often play traditional music and folk songs during certainly during our concerts and we've recorded some of that material as well uh, on our albums um but yeah it's it, it's it's the music that we grew up with or it's certainly part of the music that we grew up with and it just feels very natural you know um even if i if i if i write new music now you know i had the i, I was asked by our our friend niall mayan from a chance encounter with yourself and niall and ken binley down in the happy pair not that long ago uh, to set music to a beautiful piece of footage from the sea and we ended up you know writing that piece winter sun but that in a sense is like irish folk music 
you know, it's new, it's newly composed, but it has that flavor, you know, it, mm. it kind of, it can't help itself <laughs> in, in a way, you know. <laughs> Absolutely. Tell me about uh, the second and last song, which is, um, um, actually, what we, sorry, yeah, it's actually we're talking about the, your music, Bougainvillea. Oh, yeah. And this, like, so just just to frame this, you kindly wrote a piece of music for that, that my, my, li- my first live podcast for Neil's uh, beautiful piece of uh, artwork, really, that's all it can be called. Mm-hmm. But you also, um, we also had a second video and, and we played your Bougainvillea, which I think is a great song. Mm-hmm. Um, tell us about that uh, song in particular. Why did you pick it? And then- well, I guess I picked it actually because, because at your podcast, about the sea with Neil and so on and you, you did you very kindly and I was beautifully surprised by the fact that you used that song for the slideshow his, his amazing images of all the people who go swimming at, at Swimrise and it was Dave in fact from the Happy Pair who came up he said where is this what's this is this you I said yeah it is I said where can you get this I said oh, it's a record I made years ago when I was living in Paris I wrote and recorded my first solo album but I never really put it out I kind of did it all on my own one microphone a guitar I used GarageBand on a Mac and I kind of did it. And then I kind of, I put it up on iTunes as an experiment just to kind of see how all that worked rather than as, Mm. and I didn't really say anything to anybody about it. And then, and then I played it to a couple of people over the years. And then someone suggested to me that I, you know, really loved the record and I should go out and do gigs and and all that, which I have yet to do. (laughs) Um, But also suggested very constructively that I re-record the vocal on a song called Hidden Soul. He just felt that particular vocal performance wasn't as good as the rest of them. So I went and did that, by which time the album had already been on iTunes. So what was it? You can't take down one song and replace it. So I took it all down and I said, I'll come back to it another day. So it's been down. It's been off the digital musical shelves for years. And the day after the podcast, because of what Dave said, I actually just put it straight back out there. And I, you know, sent out some Instagrams and some tweets saying that the album is out again. And the album is called, it's the title track, Bougainvillea, um, which I remember writing. I wrote it in, it's one of the few songs, I actually, most of the songs I wrote either in Paris or some of them in Dublin. Um, but this, I happened to be staying with a friend of mine in Los Angeles. And in his garden, he had these beautiful Bougainvillea, which are, and they're, they're, they're a particularly vibrant red color. Um, and I'm married to a beautiful woman who has, whose hair uh, is a particularly vibrant red color as well. <laughs> so there's the connection. There's the kind of, it became, uh, I suppose, a, a metaphor for, for what's been going on with us, you know? Um, so I wrote that song Bougainvillea there in Los Angeles when I was in, in my friend William's garden. Coming to the end of it, I just want to ask you a couple of things about your. Um, I know we've been talking about it. Like, I remember you telling me by writing that piece of music, you know, it took three or four weeks' time to do it, and then you had Claire Sands putting some mm. lovely uh, fiddle on it, and it's, it's this fantastic piece. Mm. Um, but what I'm curious about is how do you switch on something like that? And I know it's time, like, you need the time to do it, and you're a busy man, but. Mm. 
if you had two weeks off that you don't have to talk to them, could you switch that on and start to write music? Could you write three or four songs in the next two weeks? And if so, how do you do it? Well, that's a very good question because I've written... In the last couple of years, any composing that I've done has been done under time pressure. And that can sometimes work in your favour because you've got to get the job done if you've promised that you're going to do it. Um, and I'll give you another example. You know, Aside from the piece that I wrote for you guys, um, and that maybe took... I started down one route with that and I, you know, after about an hour of working on it, I said, no, this is wrong. And then I picked up the guitar and I started from the guitar and I, it, it, I just changed the feel of it. And it all came together quite quickly, and as, as many of the best songs do. Um, and what I do, even if I'm not able to sit down and write, sometimes lyrics and words and ideas come to me and I make notes into my phone, you know, sometimes sing a melody into my phone. So by the time I get two weeks free, I have a big stash of stuff that I can kind of look at and use as triggers for song ideas. Some of them might become completed songs very quickly. Some of them might stumble and falter and become songs after a long time. Um, I recently did, a couple of years ago, I did the soundtrack to an Irish, an Irish T.G. Cahar drama. It was about a band called Nefirbol, a fictitious band who were together in the 1960s. And the story, the six part television drama was how they came back together after 40 years for their revival, their big comeback gig. So this bands who were like a cross between, you know, the Clancy Brothers and the Horse Lips had their music that needed to be written for the t- television drama. And that was my job. I was commissioned wow. to write all of these songs and I had very little time to do it. And I ended up like grabbing 10 minutes here and 10 minutes there and coming into my little studio and recording very quickly. But um, after a while, when I went back and looked at all the sketches, I had most of it. And the director, the writer of the drama came to hear something and said, that's all great. That's all working. So sometimes you don't even know that you're coming up with the goods when you actually are. So pressure can work in a positive way. But also, yes, I do yearn for some lengthier windows of time and space to be able to compose <laughs> I, in my own time. You'd be like um, Bill Fay. You'd be like you're seven, when you're 78, exactly. you, you release your second album. <laughs> that's, that's what I'm banking on. <laughs> But uh, jokes aside, do you have something in mind, like added as a solo or with the hot ass flowers? Is there something in the pipeline that we can I, I, look for? I would love both of those things to happen. Um, the flowers have made no kind of we've 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 kind of got a new record that was made up in a week, very much improvised in Windmill Lane Studios. We spent a week in there just playing every day, and then we edited it all down and worked on it a little bit. And it's a very sort of honest record. It's very, it's, you know, it's flaws and all. It's music in the moment. Um, and it's not, the, it, it was a record that was made not using the traditional song craft, if you mm. know what I mean. Um, so, I, you know, I would love to follow up on that at some point with a, with a new Hot Flowers record. I don't know if that's going to happen or not soon. You know, if it does happen, I hope it happens soon or happens quickly. Um, um, but in terms of my own music, Yes, I really would love to make a new record myself. I've started um, looking at some songs. Um, the 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 idea of, of I've re-recorded my song "Bottle of Rum" recently with with Claire Sands, in fact, and Claire is really egging me on. You know, she said, "That's your, you know, you need to do an EP. You've done this piece called Winter Sun, which is about the sea. Bottle of Rum is about the sea. You just need to write two more songs about the sea, and you've got an EP." which is all kind of centered around a nice theme. And, you know, as you probably know, I love going down to the cove 
<laughs> here near where I live and getting into the sea. It's just it's it's so brilliant, as, as so many of us in this neighborhood know. Um, so, yeah, I, 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 I hope uh, putting Bougainvillea out again has satisfied, has reawakened my determination to make some new music soon. And I guess it's also let people know that I do make my own music and that I write my own songs. And that's something that's good to let people know. And that's great. And also, I think from what you were saying earlier on about how you, you decide to distribute some of your music with the hot ass flowers, you know, the way the world has changed in mm-hmm. terms of how to, it's also has changed that you can record a lovely piece of music. You played for me earlier on, you played the, the re-recorded uh, Bottle of Rum and you record it. It doesn't have to be Windmill Lane. You mm-hmm. can do it in your own studio. And it's, it's, it's amazing that you can actually then re-release it. And so all of that is helping the new music coming out. It, it's, it's given artists huge independence. You know, while, while there's, you know, there's, there's, there's very little possibility for most artists to make a living from selling records. However, if you make records, it gives you something to talk about and it gives you a document of your songs that people love to hear at your shows. And actually, you can go and sell your records at your shows. It's become a kind of a cottage industry for a lot of artists. And that's given artists freedom, you know. Um, most of the artists that I probably play on the radio now, in Irish artists, most of them are doing it that way. Uh, but they're doing it. They're getting out there and they're booking their own shows. They're selling their, they're meeting their audiences after the gigs. And, you know, if they're selling 20 CDs at a tenner a pop, um, that cost them two quid to make, they're doing okay, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's, it's, it's an interesting time. It's an interesting time. You can get your music out to a, an audience um, very quickly. Uh, it might be a very small audience to begin with, mm. but, you know, m- music is magic. Is. And it, it, it evolves, and, and a certain, you know, a song might capture somebody's imagination somewhere in the world who speaks about it or does something with it that causes a whole bunch of other, a ripple effect and causes a whole bunch of other people to hear about it and fall in love with it as well. Just before we play the last song, um, I always ask everybody for a couple of words of wisdom, a mm-hmm. quote, anything, <laughs> anything that gets you up in the morning. Well, one of the greatest pieces of advice that I was ever given, and it's a long time ago now, um, you know, I was going through some kind of roughness, you know, probably splitting up and young kids and a band that had fallen apart as well, all about around about that time in the mid 90s. Um, and the best piece of advice I was given at that time, I was it was it was right at the beginning of when I was contemplating the idea of having to, you know, um, I might have to just become a solo musician. I might have to make my own music. And the greatest piece of advice I was given was play from your wounded place. And it's stayed with me ever since. Mm. Because whether you're a a singer or a guitarist or a writer, if you're hurting inside, you've got this, if you're able to just admit that to yourself, you've got this great vehicle that can transform that hurt into something beautiful, into something creative. And it's very cathartic. It can kind of release it all. So yeah, play from your wounded place. Lovely. And we're going to leave it with the couple of artists that pretty much doing what you just said uh, Mick Flannery and um, Susan O'Neill yeah. and the latest uh, so and the latest single came out a couple of weeks ago yeah beautiful oh this this is brand new it's it's Mick Flannery's first release of of 2020 and he has brought Susan O'Neill who's an incredible singer uh, in to sing on this gorgeous song Baby Talk I really find it hard to define why this song speaks to me so much 
but I love it. Like I nearly play it every night I'm on the radio. I might get start getting, you know, <laughs> don't be playing that so so much, you know, <laughs> favoritism, but it's not favoritism at all. It's just a love of a great, great song. It's it's for me, it's one of the perfect songs of 2020. Um it's it's beautiful. Baby talk. Thanks, Amelia. <laughs> Thanks, Amelia, for your time. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Andrea. Enjoyed it. I feel the tide turning. I face my body to the sea. I read it like the yearning. In your heart, that's not for me. Read.